Welcome to Where Others Won't. My guest on this episode is Tiffany Bova, a growth and innovation executive at Salesforce and best-selling author of Growth IQ. Tiffany has some fascinating ideas about sales and customer service, which are the definition of going where others won't. Tiffany, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you for having me. I actually want to start with your book, Growth IQ. It's your first book, and we'll, we're going to dig into the nitty-gritty of it after this. But I'd love you to just share the, the big idea behind the book and you know how it came about. What was this idea that made you want to put it down on, on paper and, and disseminate it to the world? It was uh, fairly simple. It was sort of a simple beginning, you know. <laughs> it was I get got consistently asked uh, by clients and companies that I met with over the course of sort of my you know working with with a lot of businesses around the world. Hey, what's the one thing I can do this quarter to help turn around some slowness and softness in our business? Or what's the one thing I can do to re sort of invigor- invigorate growth within the business? And I'd be like. I don't know, you know, let me kind of think about that to your point, kind of unpack, what does that look like? And I found myself sort of saying the same things pretty repeatedly. So I'm like, well, you know, maybe, maybe this should be a book, but the aha for me was the one thing about growth is it's never one thing. And I think lots of companies look for that single bullet, uh, you know, that's going to sort of bring it home. But in the end, uh, it, it isn't one thing. And so even the term growth IQ, which is great. It's a, a simple kind of premise that you're intrigued by and want to know more about. Was that easy for you or did that kind of come as you were developing the idea? Well, I think part of it was as I was sort of, I like to say kind of deconstructing high performing growth companies. And as, as I was learning what would make some successful and others not, I really realized that growth for me was a lot about a thinking game. Mm-hmm. It was sort of how companies thought differently about how to approach growth, what levers they would pull when it when it came to how to grow the business, uh, the way in which they viewed their company and their brand and their values, you know, sort of all those things. And so when I started realizing that it was an internal sort of thinking process, IQ was a natural fit. It was easy for me to say, okay, growth, and this is all about IQ, so being smarter about growth, I felt that that was a singular, easy way to frame up what I was going to talk about. I love it. A lot of people say to me, you know, where others won't, there's a catchiness to it. And uh, I wish I had a a simple story for how that came about, but it was just kind of one of those, uh, you know, staring off into the distance moments. But uh, yeah, I really love Growth IQ. And I ask this of all the authors that come on here, because this is really interesting just to me as someone else who's written a book. Generally, you have your favorite passages or chapters or big ideas that you think everyone's going to latch onto. And then once you release it, you realize that they've actually cordoned on or, or started to like something different. You know, the way I usually say it is Malcolm Gladwell's probably sitting there thinking the 10,000 hours idea wasn't actually his favorite one. Uh, it, was there anything like that that uh, surprised you that once you basically gave it to the world that they latched onto something in particular? Um, well, there's been a couple of things. I, I, I wanted to try to tell that story about how to orient yourself around this thinking style uh, on Growth IQ. Mm-hmm. And I, I really landed on three things. One was sort of knowing the context of your market before you make any decisions. The second was, as I was just saying, it's not one thing, but it's the combination of things that you do. And the third thing was the sequence in which you do it. And I thought that was going to be the big, you know, aha moment. It was for me, that's for sure, as I was looking at all these uh, high-performing companies. But people really felt connected to the stories. There's 30 stories in the book. And so what's been fascinating is which stories really stood out to people that they remember. Like if someone says, oh, I really enjoyed the book, I'd say, oh, which which story did you really resonate with you? And, you know, sometimes you can tell well, how far someone's read by which story they pick. <laughs> because, you know, if they all pick the first story, you're like, well, that doesn't tell me much, right? <laughs> but uh, it, it was very interesting. It was interesting uh, that many people were very interested in the uh, Kylie Jenner story. I think mm-hmm. the timing of the book coming out and her being named uh, 
um, you know, uh, one of self-made billionaires and her just her youth and driving that business, the timing of that was correct. The other was I used Sears in the book, which, you know, once again, I got lucky on the timing that uh, unfortunately Sears had hit even further troubles. And so that story sort of had some legs. There were others that I thought were really going to to resonate with with readers um, that I haven't heard a lot of feedback on. But, you know, I think that it, the, the goal of me using those stories was really that it could be relatable to any region, kind of any industry, any size company and any role in the organization. And I know if you've written a book, you know, your editors, when one of the very first things uh, and your publishers will ask you is who's the target audience. And mine was sort of anyone, which was the wrong answer for them. <laughs> but, <laughs> of course. But I tried to do that on purpose and uh, I didn't want to um, be willy nilly about, about writing it for multiple roles, but it really was focused on if I tell these stories in various ways, I know it will resonate with people, not all of them, but then they can skip those stories if they need to and get to ones that they feel more connected to. Yeah. And my background is sports and, you know, my writing kind of sits at that intersection of the overlap between sports organizations and the teams and what companies can learn from it. And, you know, you've got the graphic uh, with, with the saying, any company is the sum of all the decisions it has made over time and the context, combination and sequence in which those decisions are made. And to your point there, in terms of it being relevant, that is so relevant to sports. And you can look at the dysfunctional teams in any of the, the big North American sports, any of the European, you know, I'm from Australia, so the teams down there. And if you were to, you know, put a, a ruler over the top of um, that idea that's kind of at the core of your book, uh, that would be relevant in the sporting world just as it's relevant in the business world. Well, when I was looking for an analogy for the book, you know, I was trying to go, okay, what's the analogy? Like, what analogy can I use? And I went through actually a series of them. One of them was cooking, mm -hmm. that I can have the exact same ingredients that Julia Childs had, and I'm going to guess my cordon bleu would really be bad. <laughs> so, right. Right? And you know, how she would simmer a sauce or when she would add this or when she'd add that or when she'd cook this, you know, or I was going to do architecture, you know, like the foundation of a house camp with the roof on first or getting to the top of Mount Everest. You know, there is a sequence that you have to go from base camp to first camp back down. And the sequence doesn't change because it's the safest way for you to, you know, ascend up to the top of Mount Everest. And one of them was actually sports, where American football thinking um, about who you recruit, you know, in let's pick the NFL draft, you know, who you recruit in the NFL draft for American football is who's already on your team. Where do you have weakness? Where do you have injuries? Where do you want to really improve? And so if you have a, you know, Super Bowl winning uh, league MVP quarterback, do you need to recruit another quarterback? Right. Probably not. Right. And so what's going to complement that? Maybe it's defense so that you can get the quarterback on the field more often. And so it's interesting that you'd say that because I was trying to find the right analogy that would, you know, lend itself globally. Was it cooking? Was it climbing Mount Everest? Was it architecture? Was it sports? Was it, you know, and I and I didn't go down the path of using an analogy. And so I do it sometimes when I'm on stage, depending on where I am. Um, but, but the one thing is for sure that, uh, one of the things I, I try to explain to people that is that growth is everyone's responsibility, that while you may not have a sales job title on your business card, it doesn't mean you're not quote unquote selling like Dan Pink says, right. To sell as human yes. like in everyone's role, there is some flavor of selling. And so one of the points I make in the book is that, customer service may be the new sales force, two words, the new sales force, right, really driving into the existing base. And, and I got a lot of flack for that. Like, well, there's no way, like, there's no way, Tiffany, you're telling me that we're going to make customer service agents into salespeople. Mm -hmm. So I went back to a sports analogy and I said, okay, well, in American football, you have a, you know, field goal kicker and a running back. A running back scores seven points, a field goal kicker scores three, both score. But you would never take a running back to go cook a, kick a field goal, and you would never take a field ball kicker for sure 
and stick him behind the line to go run into the defense. I mean, that, he'd probably get killed. The, the, the running back trying to kick a field goal would just be funny. But, you know, ultimately, <laughs> they still score. It's just yes. one scores three and one scores seven, right? And so the point is that that's what you think about growth is everyone plays a different role. Does the lineman on offense, you know, or does the goalie in, in you know, European football, the soccer, do, do they score? No, but they defend against someone else scoring. So they play their role in winning. It's just different. And so I think that you're right, that, that if you can lay it into some kind of analogy that other people can relate to, the, the power of the story starts to, to really bubble up. It's funny you used cooking because one of the shows we did recently was with Mike Lombardi, who... He's in the media now, but he spent 30 years. He was at the 49ers. He's you know worked with Bill Belichick at the Patriots and Al Davis at the Raiders. He was the GM in Cleveland, and he was talking about cooking and ingredients. and And his thing was we were talking about uh, talent evaluation and the idea of the um, the combine and how we get confused uh, by you know, the raw measurables of these athletes when ultimately that's one ingredient that's going to go into the sauce or whatever. And uh, we, we were talking about that, that analogy and I'm writing a book now and I was thinking of farming. So it was, uh, I kind of half wrote the book around this idea of farming and paddocks and cows and, and how they all move around. But uh, I've since scrapped that. So maybe that's another show. Maybe, maybe that's a, a blog or something that I could start. I'll go around and ask authors the analogies that they bailed out on um, <laughs> in trying to write their books. But uh, you're right, you do have to kind of land on one that, that resonates. And I'm not surprised that, um, that yours is quite flexible. But, uh, you know, this is a show about teams and culture, which is, you know, something that's not historically associated with growth. You know, to, to steal from Simon Sinek, there's that idea of sacrificing people to save the numbers. And ultimately what that means is we want to sell more and, and uh, uh, you know, kind of uh, try to cut the overhead of people. But we can have that rapid, successful growth and take care of our people, can't we? Well, I don't think you could do one without the other. I think that many people have realized this concept of employee first and customer centric being completely connected and the the absolute role culture plays in the ability for a company to not only grow but innovate uh yeah i happen to work at salesforce which is a brand that is one of the top places to work everywhere in the world it's one of the most innovative companies on you know most people's list it's one of the most socially conscious and giving back and sustainable buildings and you know our culture is known and all those there's no coincidence that it's one of the most innovative, one of the best places to work culturally, and we are growing exponentially. And so I think that those, those sort of three things are tied together. And if you don't have happy employees, you're most definitely not going to have happy customers. And if you don't have happy employees, you know, there's a reason why, where if you have a toxic culture that's just chasing the numbers and you're not thinking about the people, then they feel like the customers are also just a number. They're not treating them like a person. And so at the end of the day, you know, it, it's people buying from people, selling to people, you know, even if it's B2C in the business to consumer market or the business to business market, it doesn't matter. It's still all about people. And as you travel around now and speak at conferences and, and you've got the book, obviously, and how, how much is that actually the case in the workplace? Because I think what I've done to myself and probably the... Uh, feed algorithms on on LinkedIn and Twitter is I've surrounded myself with similar thinkers, but are people still struggling with that idea? Of what, the culture driving, uh, driving growth and innovation? Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting because I'd say that I've been here in this, in this role for three years and the prior 10 years, I was a research fellow at Gartner and I was advising companies, tech companies, mostly on growth and innovation and sales transformation and digital marketing and things like that. And I didn't get into the culture conversation very often, if ever, really. Mm-hmm. And since joining Salesforce, you know, what I hear from a lot of people and, you know, pretty much the norm is I want to learn more about Salesforce on Salesforce. Like, how do you guys do it? Right. How do you recruit and onboard and 
How do you train your sellers and how do you get 35,000 employees to all sort of go in the same direction and know what your values are as a company and be able to tell the Salesforce story? And, you know, that kind of consistency of the brand and who we are and what we stand for. Um, I think that now I pay much more attention to having that be a, a big part of my conversations. Uh, a few weeks ago in Canada, I gave a presentation on on culture and growth and the role that culture plays in, in that. And in preparing for it, you really start to realize uh, how many companies are starting to actually lean into what that means. And you can tell by something as simple as a television ad. So you said farming. Well, you're in Canada, correct? You're in Toronto. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I'm sure you've seen the commercial of a brand talking about sustainable farming and the humane treatment of animals and about its release of gas into the atmosphere and that this particular brand is working with Canadian farmers specifically and there's no mention of the product that they sell. Do you know who I'm talking about? I do. McDonald's. McDonald's. So, very good. I'm so glad you guessed. That's kind of like in, in, in court where the lawyers say, don't ever ask a question you don't know the answer to. So I'm glad you knew what the answer was. Well, I've cut the, I've cut the cable as well, so it's, it's pretty lucky that I have seen it. So I, <laughs> I don't well, see a lot of ads, but, but I have but, seen that but one. But what's interesting is you remember. Yes. You remember that ad. So it wasn't about a Big Mac and supersizing it and French fries and $5 Happy Meals. And, you know, it was not. It was a very socially conscious, you know, environmentally conscious, um, taking care of the farmers and the animals and, you know, ultimately just being big, you know, being good stewards of their communities and the, and the places in which they have a business. That is a very different approach than I'm selling a product. So there's this, I'm not saying they're, they're getting rid of all the product-based advertising because obviously they're not. But you see more and more brands leading with this very cultural um, perspective and message to um, connect them to the new generation of spenders that are more interested in spending money with brands whose values align with them. They want to work with brands that values align with theirs. They're willing to get paid, speaking specifically of the millennials in this comment, they're willing to get paid less money to work with a with a brand or with a company that has that alignment and where they feel like they have a purpose at work, that it isn't just about the paycheck, that's very different. Uh, and, and that tells you that I think we're finally turning the corner on this kind of purpose over profit and thinking more about the broader impact that your business has on the world. I'm glad you said that. And there certainly is a societal element to it as well, which is interesting. And even to just think about recent history and you know, I, I raise this a lot with people at just parties and having conversation is there was kind of this idea that the iPhone created itself. And, you know, as someone who studies culture and leadership and, you know, takes in all these different articles, the, the story is that a group of people got together and created that thing. And for a long time, particularly because Silicon Valley was so rampant, you were just kind of watching and there was this idea that it was fueling itself. But as a sports coach and, and someone that, yes, looks at this stuff closely, I, I was kind of baffled that um, that was the outcome that people were coming to. And, and there was people behind that. And, and so, you know, my thing was always, how can we, how can we get groups of people together to, to work together to create something like that more often? Um, and, and now businesses certainly have seen the benefit of that. And you're right, there's a societal element to it as well. And I think that ultimately uh, this is the first time from a work perspective that there's five generations working at the same time. Right. And we may get to a point where there's six. That has huge implications on the culture of an organization because now you're, you're blending so many different expectations and comfortability with technology. And like this conversation is a lot of the EQ side of it. <laughs> not the IQ side of it, um, which when you talk culture, it's the soft stuff that's hard, right? The hard stuff is much easier now, but the soft stuff is hard, like making sure that you have sort of values and the culture and, you know, all getting everyone going in the same direction. And, um, you know, are you really 
focused on the right things? Are your employees happy? Like, are you doing right by your employees so that ultimately your customers have a good experience? I mean, that's very different than, you know, I'm going to work for my employer for 30 years. I'm going to retire. I'm going to get a pension. I'm, you know, that I, it, this is a paycheck for me. It, it's a means to an end. That's, that's very different than, than this generation. Absolutely. So you've got a tweet pinned to the top of your Twitter and I want to dig into, there's uh, about seven or eight comments and I want to kind of go through them one by one. And this is really going to dig into some of those, those core ideas for you and, and we can just chat them through if that's okay. Perfect. So again, for starters, for someone who looks at companies with an internal focus first, I just love the opening. You're not competing with other companies you're competing with. And then I'll introduce the next one. So the first one you've got there is internal inertia. So you're not competing with other companies, you're competing with internal inertia. What do you mean by that? Well, you know, when asked what slows growth, it might surprise you to learn that most executives actually cite internal factors. So there was a Bain and Company study that showed that 85% of the executive surveys and a full 94% of those running companies with more than $5 billion in revenue said that internal, not external obstacles keep their companies from growing profitably. So that's what's meant by internal inertia. You know, sort of the comment behind that was that, oh, we tried that, it never worked or it didn't work. We tried that five years ago and it didn't work, so we're going to try it now. Or that's not the way we do things here. That's that internal inertia dial where that is very culturally driven, right? So it isn't an external black swan event of Brexit or um, GDPR or, you know, the, the country's in a recession or, you know, where those are things you just, a regulation changing, you cannot control. You just can't control it. But what you can control is all the things we've just been talking about. Why would people want to work with, with you and for you? Why would customers want to buy from you? Like making process improvements and people and talent improvements. Those are things you can control. And I, I think too many companies um, actually benchmark the competition and that distracts them from the fact that they should really be spending that much time looking internally to see what can we actually improve versus trying to replicate what someone else is doing. This will surprise a lot of people, but uh, again, going back to my sports background, a lot of sports organizations, and this it causes a lot of the kerfuffle between the media and the, the people that give the press conferences, but a lot of them don't actually care about the opposition. And what I mean by that is that they don't see the game as being adversarial in any way, shape or form. Yes, you do play an opponent and that opponent, uh, or you either win or lose against that opponent. However, it's all about controlling the controllables. And, and so... That's why when, you know, uh, they ask someone if they're intimidated by LeBron James or the Lakers or whoever they're playing on that, that given day, most of them just kind of shrug their shoulders and like, well, yeah, uh, not really. Because uh, if we can control what we can control and we play to our ability, we should be able to win. And, and uh, yeah, going back to my point before, I would like to see a lot more organizations take on that uh, because of not only the data that you mentioned before, but I think it's more of a healthy way of regulating yourself and, and looking internal first versus looking at the economic factors and, and all these different variables that you can't control anyway. But, uh, you know, I've certainly seen them as well from my career. I used to be in tech recruitment and I switched companies once and there was this idea within one company and it was a much bigger company that uh, a particular client didn't have any IT contractors. Then I got into the new, <laughs> the, the new organization and learned that they had 60 contractors billing there and had been a, a long-term client. So you're right, it's, uh, th those comments internally uh, just drive um, this, this kind of lack of growth more often than something like Brexit. Well, but what's interesting is that I, I wouldn't say that uh, going back to your sports comment that, that they don't, there are certain sports that are like, let's pick golf. That's very much, that's a, that's a you against the course. Right. Right. Yep. But if you're talking about, you know, a LeBron James and you're talking about a team against another team, there is value in watching film. Oh, so of course. There is a value right in, in studying the competition, quote unquote. 
But that is not, that's not what you, you should just not sit and study the film and not go practice and not, you know, so it's the combination. But what I feel and in my comments about benchmarking the competition is that many companies will spend a lot of money and time benchmarking who they currently compete against. And it gets them trying to replicate potentially everything that they're doing. And it's the, it's the unknown competition that is disrupting today. Not the known competition. That's the first thing. The second thing is that if you spent take half as much time as you take benchmarking external and benchmark yourself internal, talk to customers. What do they like? What don't they like? You know, you, you use the Apple example, and and Steve Jobs was like, look, if I went, you know, and asked what customers wanted, we would have never developed the iPhone because they didn't know what they wanted. That's that's a once in a generation kind of innovation. Mm-hmm. The rest of it is iterating on what other people have done and said, I can make it better if I'm paying attention to what the customers are looking for and I'm not trapped on the inside. So, um, you know, they're, they're, I don't need people to be Steve Jobs or a Mark Benioff or a Jeff Bezos, but I need them to welcome their customers when they show up, wherever that may be, right? Whether it's a new sales channel or a new service channel or, you know, whatever, whatever. So to the McDonald's comment we were making earlier, I don't need them to get rid of all their product advertising. But Let's sprinkle in some of that other stuff. And you remembered it. But I bet you if I asked you the last McDonald's product ad and asked what the special was, you wouldn't know. Totally. Let's move on to the next one. You're not competing with other companies. You're competing with siloed organizations. Yes. So this one uh, is very directed to three organizations specifically. One is sales. One is marketing. One is customer service. And... The siloed uh, organizations actually tie to the very next one, which is the KPIs or the key key performance indicators. So you have groups that are siloed, and usually that's driven by the fact that the metrics are very different. So if you have a metric for a sales organization that is go sell, I'm oversimplifying. And marketing's is go get new leads, and customer service is answer the phone in one ring and get off the phone within two minutes. Those three KPIs might be their number one KPIs. I think you might agree that all three of them are all internally focused. Yes. They have nothing to do with the customer. Right. So there's nothing that ties them together. And so you have to break down the walls of these silos, especially in these customer-facing orgs, those three I just mentioned. And the easiest way to do that is to start to give them shared metrics so that they realize that if – I market something and it's not correct and sales ends up selling it, customer service has to bear the weight of making it better. But if I just market it correctly and sales sells it correctly up front, we can drive down calls in the call center. And so uh, service can actually focus on, you know, providing value to customers, not putting out fires. So that's just, those two are completely tied together. You, the way to break it down is to share some kind of KPI. So if it's, customer satisfaction or a net promoter score or churn rates or uh, lifetime value or, you know, total revenue, whatever it might be, whatever you think is going to pull the teams together, that's what I mean by those two. Yeah. And do you think a lot of companies are trying to solve that problem by just uh, with reporting lines as opposed to kind of a process and a a cultural change of, of how they're measuring themselves? Yes. One of the biggest innovation killers is the org chart, right? Because that's not my responsibility. So I'm in sales. Customer service is not my responsibility. I'm in marketing. I'm delivering leads, good or bad. Once again, I'm oversimplifying, but sure. you know, yep. marketing, good or bad, I, I, I checked the box. I delivered 1,000 leads today. And you're like, yeah, but 950 of them were terrible. Like I'd rather just have 50 really good ones and not have to we, you know, wade through the 950 that aren't good. And customer service saying, you know, uh, I have to answer the phone on the first ring, but then the customer is like, well, okay, you answered the phone on the first ring. I would have rather waited on hold than have you answered in the first ring and transfer me seven times. Like I'd just rather get to the right place the first time. Right. Yeah, exactly. So, um, you know, that's where you really have that opportunity to, um, you know, get people, uh, to, to come together and it cannot be driven from that top down org chart you know, stick kind of mentality. This has to be a bottom-up movement of people going, I'm not going to do something that's going to put sales in a bad position. And we're not going to do something to put customer service in a bad position at the people, individual contributor level. 
And by the way, the one asterisk I'd put next to these two is if you are a VP of sales and a VP of marketing and a VP of customer service, you three may be totally aligned with metrics, with bonuses. You sit in on you know weekly staff meetings. You talk all the time. Great. I'm talking about the individual sales rep, the product marketing manager, and the individual customer service agent. Those three are not you. So it, it, this is not just that it has to be aligned at the executive level. It has to be aligned everywhere. The next one really stands out to me because as I was walking up here, uh, it's a beautiful day outside. I was listening to Adam Grant's podcast and he's done a podcast about memory and part of it was around organizational memory. So the next one you have here is neglected ideas. So you're not competing with other companies, mm -hmm. you're competing with neglected ideas. What do you mean by that one? So, you know, in my previous role, I was a, uh, I was a, an analyst for um, Gartner, as I mentioned, and it was fascinating to watch where I would get asked to come in for a full day for a quote-unquote consulting day with a client. And the fee was not inexpensive to, to you know, it, was, it wasn't cheap. So for me to go for a day was not cheap. And let's say that it was a group full of people, a mix of doers and leaders, right? So sort of both in the room. And one of the doers has been saying to everybody, the sky is blue. And everyone goes, yeah, no, mm-mm. Sky not blue. I don't believe it's blue. It's not blue. It's never been blue. It's never going to be blue. I walk in. I don't work there. I have no skin in the game. I have no agenda. I sit down and I say, I'm here to tell you the sky is blue. And they all look around and go, oh, my God, the sky is blue. And the person, guy or girl, who's been saying the sky is blue for six months like looks at me and it's just like, oh my God. And you can see it. I see the wind come right out of them. Like I've been saying this, no one was listening to me. Right. Like no one thought I knew enough to make that kind of big sweeping suggestion. I didn't have the experience. I'm a new hire. What do I know? I'm just the whatever, you know, or I'm the quiet one in the corner that never comes up with a good idea. And I really had a great idea. So I'm going to guess if you look Across the landscape, which is littered by companies that are no longer around, someone said, I think digital photography is going to be the way to go. The sky is blue. And the executives at Kodak said, no, 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 always going to be film. Blockbuster had the streaming idea before Netflix came along. They were doing it, but someone said, mm, it's distracting from our core business. So we're going to kill that idea. So at the end of the day, ideas that get neglected are a combination of a lot of things. But one of them is that it's coming from someone who doesn't have the internal authority. And I say that with big asterisks next to it, right? To have that kind of bold idea. Or it's you get trapped in that, we tried it, it didn't work. It's not the way we do it. So, you know, this is where uh, there's a lot of talk around diversity and inclusion. And one of the things um, that I think gets neglected in that is just the personality sitting at a table, diversity of, you know, thought or thinking styles where you have an introvert who doesn't ever participate and an extrovert who bowls over someone who's trying to give an idea. Like I'm trying to say the sky is blue and someone goes, shuts me down and goes on to why the sky is green. Yes. Yeah. So this is really about letting people and ideas breathe regardless of where they come from. They're not all going to be right, but you have to have a way to let them breathe. And they might not be right right now, but they may be right eventually. And I, I wrote a, a, yes. a chapter in my book, uh, the, the example around this that, that I found was Dyson. So, you know, known for vacuum cleaners, but the, the story behind uh, the, the hand blade, like the uh, hand dryer that you see in most toilets around the world now is was a failed project from years earlier and they repurposed that uh, technology somewhere else. And uh, so, you know, they go and ask James Dyson about that and, you know, he just said, you know, uh, yeah, the, the idea wasn't right at that time, but, uh, you know, we 
made note of it and we, you know, kept the technology obviously and they're a private company so they don't need to report anything to anyone else, you know, and, and so he facilitates a lot of that thinking internally. But, um, you know, ultimately they've built their culture around a bunch of engineers and what engineers are at their heart is problem solvers. And and so, yeah, it's interesting. It's you know, We can poo-poo ideas right now, but, and this is again, going back to Adam Grant's uh, podcast, which is great. I, I highly recommend you check it out. He tells a story of a furniture store who have an archive of every product that they've designed, whether it's gone live or not, and every ad that they've ever had since 1932. And so their innovation stories actually start there. The the designers will go and visit the archive and look at old material and, and designs and drawings and writing and and everything that uh, that didn't make it. And ultimately, it ends up inspiring. Uh, new and improved, and it's seen as an innovation, but it might be a fifty-year-old idea. Yeah, and and that goes to the very first thing in my book I talk about, which is context of the market. So, saying what you just said, it just wasn't right. It wasn't the right timing. So, I use Netflix as an example, where if Netflix, when it first started in the United States, had started with streaming, would they have failed? Yes. You have to remember the time of this, right? Because Wi-Fi was not everywhere. Not every household had high-speed internet access. You know, it wasn't cheap, all of those things. But what we knew and what Blockbuster had proven was the fact that everyone had a VCR or a DVD player in their house because the commoditization of it, right, in Moore's Law, it had gotten cheaper and cheaper and they were, you know, 100 bucks or 150 bucks. So everyone had a VCR or a DVD player. So in the U.S., they started with mail because they were solving for a couple of pains, right? Light fees, having the, you know, et cetera. So now when they decided to, you know, that the context of the market was that it had to be mail order in the U.S. When they left the U.S. many years later, they did not start with mail order in Europe. They started with streaming. And they went to countries and places that had high-speed internet access and access to Wi-Fi. So... You might be surprised. It's one of the stories in the book, but you know there's still some 750,000 people in the U.S. that still do mail order DVDs from Netflix. <laughs> it's highly profitable, and guess what? It's funding original content. So the the lesson there is in that sequence of it might not have been a good idea 50 years ago, or five years ago, or last year, but the context of the market, who you compete against, what your product is who you have as customers, what you've learned, all those things, that's new every single day. So that's why that kind of idea killer and innovation uh, and org chart is, is that if you just say, you just kind of, you know, blow it off as not a good idea, but, and you're not keeping an eye on that context of the market, uh, you will walk away from, as Blockbuster did, as Kodak did, as, right, customers change, the expectations change, you need to either capitalize on it or you risk having whatever it is and the way you're doing it become uh, obsolete. I spoke at a marketing conference not too long ago here in Toronto and I actually stood up there and was like, do you guys know that Netflix still has their DVD business? And everyone looks at me and is like, Cody, you are an idiot. There is no way that that still operates. But it's true. I think I think it's just dvd.netflix.com and uh, it pulls up the site and you're right. It's uh, still operational and uh, and making... Um, you know, uh, still money, obviously profitable and, and funding other things within the business. And um, yeah, uh, you know, I, I wrote a ton about context and, and it's something that I, I beat that drum as much as possible in a whole range of different areas, whether it is the internal stuff, whether it's recognition of the external factors with a business, but it's so important. Um, Let's move on. The next one is, and I'm really interested in this one from you, disengaged employees. And uh, so you're not competing with other companies, you're competing with disengaged employees. What do you mean by that one? Uh, that's a couple of things. And I mentioned it a little while ago yeah. on this whole concept of, look, your customers are only going to be happy as your employees. So if that's the foundation where you have to be employee first, customer centric, if you believe in that statement, then we go up to the ones we already talked about. Ideas you neglect. I was sitting in the room. The sky is blue. They've totally ne neglected my idea. Am I going to be willing to share another one? Or have I moved from being totally engaged to I'm collecting a paycheck and I'm looking for a job? Because they don't, 
um, value my opinion because they paid this consultant to come in to say the sky is blue and they act like this is, you know, the first time they've ever heard it. And I've been saying it for six months or whatever. Disengaged because I have the wrong key performance indicators, right? You tell me that you want me to focus on customer experience, but the only thing you're measuring me on is how quick I get a customer off the phone. Those two things, you know, don't agree with each other, right? It's like apples and oranges. So I am like, well, I'm going to disengage. If it's siloed organizations where you just sort of tell me to work more closely with another organization, another team, if you will, but there's no way to foster that collaboration. We're not rewarded for it. That team isn't as willing to do it. We are. And so you just kind of stop trying. Or internal inertia is you do that, you know, I go and I say, I want um, I, I want to go and, and launch some new business. And then someone says, that's not the way we do it. And so, you know, the, the power of having engaged employees is, you know, they work harder for you, for your customers. They're there every day to make a difference. They're going to help those around them. You know, they're, they're always willing to raise their hand to support whatever is needed. You know, they're just, they're, they're in your corner and you can't change someone's mind either to get them engaged or to get them uh, to not be disengaged anymore. It, it has to be that people choose to work there and then every single day, you know, you earn um, your place in, in their life. And so, you know, especially in some countries, people don't have as, as easy a time and flexibility to go find new work. But in other countries where you can, you know, people now, just like customers, will uh, you know, if customer buys from you once, they spent their money. Customer buys from you a second time, they're spending with their loyalty. An employee makes the decision to work for you. And every day they come in, they're making that, I'm, I, I'm agreeing to work for you. I'm agreeing to work for you. And what you don't want to have happen is they're there collecting a paycheck and they're not really working for you. So, you know, the, 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 the people who pay your paycheck uh, are actually the customer, but you have to set up your employees for success. And so I think one of the most toxic things you can do is, is have disengaged employees. Yeah, it's about building and maintaining that trust. And, and you know, the, the thing that very rarely gets talked about with this millennial generation, and to be quite clear, I am one of them, is that um, all of these things bundled together, what we've already been talking about, uh, you know, on top of the fact that by by data, the emotional intelligence of this group is through the roof already. And so when I talk about building and maintaining trust, it's really about those factors that you've mentioned. So I want to help the customer and I know you want to help me uh, help the customer. But if you're, yeah, if my KPIs are off or I get a sniff that uh, you want me to do all these things uh, that you know, suggest that I'm loyal to the company and then you're also going to cut me the second that we lose uh, you know, a small amount of business or that my numbers aren't up to scratch, that is a, a huge misalignment in the eyes of this group of people. And so, you know, there's there's that objective to really build and maintain that trust every single day rather than, uh, you know, uh, at an annual performance review or something like that, which is the way that we used to do it. Yeah. And I think employees want to see executives and leaders making hard decisions. And sometimes the hard decisions are uncomfortable. You know, at the end of the day, for me, the backbone of corporate growth is personal growth. And personal growth means getting comfortable with being uncomfortable about the topics we've been talking about. Getting ideas from all over the place, listening in to conversations, like breaking down silos, getting people to work together, changing KPIs, really flexing your muscle on getting these. That's really uncomfortable versus going, this is what we do. This is how we do it. It's how we've always done it. We've been growing for the last one year, two years, two decades, five decades, 10 decades. Doesn't matter. Just because it got you here does not mean it's going to get you there. And I think that this is really where the soft stuff gets really hard is it, it is all about the EQ side of it, right? You being really emotionally connected to the people who work with you for you and being transparent and trustworthy is, is a big part of it. Couldn't agree more. I'm going to jump ahead here because the next one on your list there is is misaligned products. I'm really interested in this. 
what what are you talking about when you talk about misaligned products potentially costing your company in terms of the the competitive landscape? Yeah, this was something I've been talking about for about seven or eight years now where I'm going to oversimplify. But if you say you have the right product and the wrong sales channel and the right customer, it doesn't work. If you have the wrong product and the right sales channel and the right customer, it doesn't work. And so you have to have the right product sold the right way to the right customer. So, you know, you could say anything from... um, uh, you know, if it, it, so, if you take Tesla as an example, um, did Tesla need showrooms? So their channel of choice was online initially. So the product was the right product. The target customer was at the time, you know, early on, it was high net worth. It was a you know a dollar ticket item where they're willing to wait for the car for 18, 24 months, right? <laughs> right. If they had op- if they had opened up you know, uh, car dealerships and said, you know, come and buy and, but you can't get the product for two years. It wouldn't have been as great of an experience. Right. And so you have to have this sort of alignment between the right product for the right customer sold the right way and sold maybe online in person, in a retail store, you know, on Instagram, on Facebook, on Twitter, you know what I mean? Like, via a a marketplace like at Amazon. So, you know, thinking about all the people that said, I'm never going to put my products on Amazon was short-sighted because the customer, that's actually the channel they want to consume on. And oh, by the way, they want to consume your product. So if you're not there, guess what happens? They just go with another product. So you have to have those things, especially between the right product and the right customer. But in between that is the right sales channel. That's what I mean by that. And do you think that, you know, the part of the intimidating thing with that is that you could make a decision uh, for the customer right now and that could change in next month in terms of the, the customer moves or the best sales channel to access them moves or their tastes move? So, um, you know, we kind of get stuck in this, well, if we go now, then we might have to move again and, and you know, the whole thing will be wasted. Is, is there kind of that, that challenge still existing, do you think? Yeah, I do. And I and the, the danger here is kind of chasing the mice, that you can let customers pull you in a thousand directions. So that's one of the things to Steve Jobs' point that we're just not going to, if we listened to the customer, we would have made faster horses, a la Henry Ford, sure. right? So you have to be willing to listen through the noise and say, okay, I can't chase the mice. So did you need to go to, you know, Amazon as a particular, as a, as a specific marketplace, um, you know, right out of the gate? Is, is that, is that um, what you should, should have done? Or do you say, well, hold on a second, right? Some of our retailers are closing down. Our customers, we're hearing it more and more that they want us there. We've seen all these stores stand up from third-party retailers you know, on, on uh, Amazon. We really should have a presence there. That's not a, oh, well, we need to be on Amazon and the thousand other, the thousands of others that look like them, right? Like I can't be on every marketplace. Mm-hmm. But it also doesn't mean that Amazon may be the best one for you, you know, based on where you're, uh, where you're going to, you know, sort of launch in the world. I mean, ultimately, Amazon serves certain markets and, um, you know, doesn't serve, uh, doesn't serve other markets. So, you know, if you're going to go into the African continent, it wouldn't be Amazon. It would be Jumia. And you may go, well, I don't even know who they are. Well, if you want to go into the African continent, giving you that example, right, of the, you have the right product. The countries uh, that you want to target are in Africa. The right sales channel would not be Amazon. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, you just got to think about it. Definitely. That actually cost me uh, not uh, – well, until recently, Amazon wasn't in Australia. So I'm an Australian writing a, a book that wasn't written for the, the Australian market, but obviously, uh, you know, I have family and friends and, and uh, people that follow me in that market and – they really struggle to get the book, and um, yeah, there are obviously that that's a changing landscape now. They're there and and starting to build a, a footprint there. So I've I've felt that one um, firsthand. So I know what it's like. The uh, and kind of to clue onto that, the last one that you've got on this list here is not using new tech. Explain that one to me. Yeah. 
Yeah, so uh, I'd say there's sort of the, the, the big ones when people use examples of the Steve Jobs of the world is, you know, I don't need you to be him. Um, I just need you to get 18 or 24 months ahead of your customers and meet them when they get there. So, for example, if today your customer your customer service is only via phone, should you be offering them the ability to chat with you online versus just call in? So if you don't have that by this point, I'd say you might be a little late, but you should do that. But very quickly behind that is going to be, well, they're going to want to, if, if you're placing ads on Facebook to sell your product, they may want to have customer service conversations in Facebook Messenger. Or they may want to send you a tweet. Or if you're going to start selling on Instagram's, you know, commerce platform, then maybe you, they, you need to figure out how am I going to support people there? Or, you know, Spotify is now actually selling products for artists. And so if you have a product with an artist that's going to be on Spotify, or do you have a solution to do that? So it's, should, am I using all the new tech in order to make sure that I am smarter about my customers? So the obvious one would be customer relationship management. Other would be, you know, are, is your something as simple as, as is your website uh, actually able to be seen and viewed and used on mobile, on a tablet, on a desktop, something that simple. So, you know, we are very comfortable with using technology in our consumer lives, in our home, in our car, uh, you know, on our smartphones, uh, on vacation, in hotels, wherever we are. But then when we're at business, we sometimes go, oh, yeah, we, we can't do that. We don't think tech can solve it. Or um, once again, going back to what we've been talking about for some time now is, uh, the the perception that it's too expensive and out of your reach if you're a small and mid business that that kind of technology is only reserved for the big enterprise and that's no longer the case with cloud and so there's almost everything from ERP to artificial intelligence to business in intelligence to uh, mobility solutions to CRM to digital marketing um, to customer service, to financial apps that can manage the business, to HR and recruiting. Those used to be reserved for very large companies. And now it's as a service, could be by employee, by license. It makes it much more cost effective and also available to all size companies. But because they have this mindset that it's too expensive for me to pursue, they just do nothing. And, uh, you know, the competition is is by far bypassing them. So I'll leave this comment with the Kylie Jenner story because this is the best one I can use out of the book is, you know, when, when I wrote it, she was just 20. Um, so her business, uh, um, Kylie Cosmetics was $650 million or so at the time. And she had 12 employees. Right. So she's now built, she's 21. She's now built a billion-dollar business, and maybe she has 13 employees. I don't know. But ultimately, the point is that if you look at L'Oreal or Chanel or Mac or, you know, anybody else who's built a cosmetic company, they did not get to their first billion in less than five years. It was 15, 20, 25 years. It was supply chain. It was warehouses. It was R&D facilities. It was all those things. But Kylie was like, no, 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 no. Why do I need to do all that? Like, I can partner with companies that can do that for me. What I bring to the table is, I don't know, you know, 150 million social media followers. <laughs> so that's what I bring. So then you say, well, you know what? I don't have 150 million, but my point to you is, is that she can build a business with 12 employees with very little asset outlay where there's no way 25 years ago you could do that. So what can you learn from her story is, can you partner to do it? You know, how do you use social in a better way? She's proven that with no advertising, she can build a billion dollar business. Yes, I get it that not everyone has that show and that platform. I understand, but there are lessons to be learned there. So, you know, that's, that's the sort of secret sauce in saying that the context, going back to what you and I both agree on, um, part of the context is the fact that, you know, technology has been democratized and you can get your hands on almost everything um, for, a, for uh, you know, at an affordable price, even if you're a sole proprietor, you can get CRM 
You can get business intelligence. You can get analytics. You can get digital marketing platforms. A tweet is free. Posting on Facebook is free. Posting on Instagram is free. You can create a YouTube channel for free. So, you know, it's a matter of these platforms are here and businesses have to take advantage from the technology standpoint to really differentiate themselves. If I'm a, a smaller player or I'm, you know, I've experienced this firsthand, you know, working for kind of a number five in the market, do you think I'm better, given that what you've just said, do you think I'm better, if I'm trying to catch up, am I better just catching up to the norm and adding what everyone else has? Or do you think I'm better to actually gamble a little bit and try and go past? And, you know, the play right now might be that I actually go past, um, you know, just chat, like you said, and, and maybe I go straight into messenger and I spend all my money investing in, in, in how to communicate with my, my audience there, or I go, just go straight to AI right now. Like, do you think I'm better trying to catch up or go past and, and just gambling a little bit? Yeah, the, the, um, my answer would be, so let's say, you know, we were really seriously having this conversation. <laughs> uh, so for, for someone listening, I, I'm not a fan of saying, like, risk it all, go for it. Right. Right? Um, and so the first thing I'd say is go talk to your customers and find out where are they. Where do they want you? Like, go to your existing base of customers. They made a decision to buy from you once. They chose your brand. Why? What would they want from you next? Get as close as you can to your customers. Listen in on customer service calls. Go on sales calls. So I always use Undercover Boss as my example, TV show that we have, you know, in North America, as well as Europe and Asia. And I'm always fascinated that those CEOs or executives spend a good first six minutes of every show doing what? Putting on a disguise so that they can go into their stores or, you know, go into, um, you know, drive trucks or whatever at work in the warehouse, whatever it might be. And I'm always fascinated because I'm like, I bet you if you walked in, no one would recognize you anyway. <laughs> right. Because you never come in. You never say hi. You never, you don't engage in that way. Yep. So, you know, I would say that before you make any decisions, talk to your customers, talk to your employees, your customer service agents will know what's missing. Your salespeople will know what's missing. Your marketing people will know what's missing. Start there. Ask them. Remember this internal inertia. Ask them. Then listen to their opinions. Don't have to do everything, but they will feel heard. Then when you make a decision to do something that the guy in the corner said it's going to be blue, give them credit. Get people engaged, right? You want them to feel like they're part of the process. You want them to want to work there and feel like, oh, my leadership listens to me. It's employee first, customer centric. Your customers will tell you that is it worth them you shoring up to catch the competition because you are so far behind? Or can you just leapfrog a little bit and get a little ahead without risking the entire business? But test it, try, be willing to fail and move on, or test it, try, it works, and double down. Um, it depends how big your company is, is how much risk you're able to absorb um, and how much money you're willing to, to spend and able to spend on technology. But that's why I would say, first and foremost, listen to your customers, listen to your employees, then make a decision of, of what you think is going to have the greatest impact with the least amount of investment so you can test it and either move on, move past it, or double down. That's world-class. I, I, I love that. Um, thank you for that. Uh, and that mirrors a, a lot of uh, the conversations that I've been having recently as well, which is, is great for me personally. Um, so thank you. Uh, how we kind of start to wrap up the show is outside of the business world and you know the the day-to-day -day work that you're doing with Salesforce, what what are you interested in? Like what's intellectually stimulating you? It could be, you know, I don't know, whatever, the history of pianos or why people think the earth is flat. Like what what uh, what uh, what have you clued into that you're kind of looking at at the moment? I'm really trying to uh I, you know, I kind of call myself a sort of anthropologist of, of high performing companies. You know, I try to go in and deconstruct sort of what they do and what can I learn from it. And, and this one topic that we touched on um, at the beginning ever so slightly was this whole thinking around um, culture having impact on uh, growth and innovation. And um, I'm really fascinated by companies that are, like a McDonald's that are starting to take a 
a culture that is very, you know, uh, foundational in the past and the context of old. And it's been a brand that has lived, you know, and sustained itself through ups and downs, et cetera, et cetera. But watching them make this pivot and, you know, whether it's Unilever, whether it's Nike, whether it's McDonald's, you have those that have started with a strong culture like a Salesforce or a Tom Shoes or a Water.org or, you know, um, Warby Parker, right, where they say we're going to give a little bit away and we're going to give back. And all. if they've started that way, that's different. I'm very fascinated to watch established companies trying to learn and emulate from those in the periphery or even highly competitive in their market on trying to just do this purpose over profit and be much more socially conscious and watch that as an avenue for growth. It was the 10th path I picked, um, which was called unconventional strategies. And I originally started that being about something like what was going to be the next freemium. And then I started working here and I landed on this whole purpose over profit. Uh, you know, the business of business is to just be better in, in society and, and how can you really make a positive impact on the world and your communities and the people who work for you. And that was a surprise to me when I started looking at businesses that were um, ground up with that kind of DNA. But I'm really fascinated by those that have a culture that is not that and trying to make that turn and watching how shareholders, if they're publicly traded, are either for or against and really resisting the CEO of, of making those kinds of changes that may cost more to make products more environmentally friendly. And so the profit drops a little bit, but it's the right thing to do. Right. <laughs> and, and can the CEO hang on long enough uh, or are they just going to get pushed out? It's very fascinating. So that right now um, is, is, is sort of top of mind for me. We could do another hour on that. I've, uh, just off the top of my head, when you were talking there, one thing that came to mind was uh, McLaren, so in Formula One, uh, and you might know them from the road cars. They make you know um, uh, elite uh, road cars now as well. And uh, one of the things was that they started off as, you know, Bruce McLaren was just this guy from New Zealand who ended up racing in, in Formula One and ended up providing most of the engines. And the idea was that they were super innovative and um, because they didn't have as many parts as the big players at that time. And this is through the 50s and 60s as Formula One was kind of coming into its own. And and they ended up losing that quite a bit and it became corporatized. And, you know, their major sponsor was Marlborough for the longest time. And so there was, you know, corporate dollars and all these different factors factored in. And then, um, yeah, they kind of lost that innovative touch and then uh, – an opportunity arose for them to revisit their innovative past. And it actually led to the fastest pit stop ever uh, at that time. And um, I can send you the case study, but yeah, that, that was just one thing, as you were saying, you know, the startup versus the, you know, the, the big historical company and, and McLaren is a major, major player in, in automotive and obviously race cars, but um, yeah, trying to move it back to that, that innovative Oh, that that core DNA that started the company. I, I'm fascinated by that stuff as well. And there's there's so many great examples to really look into. Yeah, and I would tell you, so let's go back to the last conversation we were having. It's sort of not using tech. So McLaren, right, specifically, that, that car generates 100 gigs of data from over 200 sensors that generate 13,000 pieces of information from one race on the McLaren car, mm -hmm. specifically. Those are the stats. And it powered by Dell Technologies and, you know, all kinds of things going on. But if they weren't taking advantage of tech, they never could have beat that pit stop. Right. right. And, and talk about teamwork on that pit stop. Right. It's like that is a if we can win and we, you know, are we going to be the fastest car? Well, we may not be the fastest car, but if we can gain over the course of a race, a minute and a half in the four or five pit stops, let's do that. <laughs> right. And if we're going to beat Lewis Hamilton, like the pit stops count. <laughs> yep. They absolutely do. And uh, so one of the things that came out of my show with Whitney Johnson and, and Claude Silver was that we started to look into pit stops and, and even the culture around it. So you, you associate the time, obviously, but then how do all the, those parts work? And, and so we've, we've started to, to have some conversations around that. And that is fascinating in terms of what these guys do and where they come from and 
and how you do get it to two seconds, but then how you replicate two seconds and then, you know, what happens when there's a mistake made and, and all that sort of stuff. But uh, again... Uh, but they couldn't do it without tech at this point. They couldn't do it without tech. No. Couldn't do it without tech. Couldn't do it if the products were misaligned. Couldn't do it if they had disengaged employees. Couldn't do it if they didn't let ideas come from the bottom. Couldn't do it if the KPIs were wrong, right, on what are people focused on. Couldn't do it for sure if it was siloed and absolutely could not have done it, done it with internal inertia. 100%. It's not possible. And that's uh, exactly. And, yeah. and that's why I love this idea and, and what you've done here and, and the relevance to, you know, again, my background is sports and, and it's just so relevant across both, both landscapes. Um, where can people find you? Where can they find the book? How do they follow along with everything that you've got going on? So Growth IQ is available uh, across the U.S. and Canada, and it's now just uh, launched in the U.K. Commonwealth, including Australia, New Zealand, and London, and um, other parts of, of Europe. And it'll be making its way to um, uh, it'll be uh, translated in Spanish and Portuguese and Polish and Vietnamese and simple Chinese. So it's on its way, Very sort cool. of going around the globe. So that's that's cool. Um, I have a podcast as well called What's Next. Um, with Tiffany Boba on uh, iTunes and Spotify. So you can catch, you know, many great uh, interviews with many of the same people we've spoken to uh, o- over the last sort of couple of years. And then, you know, I tweet a lot. So I'm at Tiffany underscore Bova, and it's Tiffany with an I at the end, uh, underscore Bova. I'm pretty active on Twitter and as well as LinkedIn. So, you know, I, I'm really interested to hear what people think of our conversation and what stood out. But I really love when people completely disagree with what we say, because uh, that's how you learn. Yep. I get plenty of them. They're usually in the DMs, the people that disagree. Um, but uh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, this show is all about bringing value to the audience. And uh, I think we've done that. I think we might have just ticked over the hour mark there. I know I've made probably too many uh, notes on this piece of paper that it's almost illegible now, but thank you for your time, Tiffany. Uh, I've been following you for a long time and, and was keen to have this conversation and you've delivered on, on every stage. So uh, thank you for taking the time to chat with me and uh, we'll speak again soon. Thank you for having me, Cody. I really appreciate it. The Where Others Won't podcast is recorded at Apollo Studios in downtown Toronto and is produced and edited by Adam Esker. You can book me to speak by the Where Others Won't book or send me an email at codyroyal.com. 